Hello from Gilbert and Tobin. I'm Moya Dodd. And I'm Matt Rubenstein, and this is The Competitive Edge, what you need to know about competition law in Australia and around the sea world. The sea? I'm going to let that one go. Today, London Calling, one of the world's leading thinkers on telecoms regulatory policy, Richard Feasy, joins us from the sidelines of the Euros for a longitudinal look at his time in telecoms, why 3G was the worst generation, and his takeaways for the future of technology and regulation. I used to have a mantra in Vodafone, I'm much more concerned about the disruptive effect of competition enabled by new technology than I am actually about the impact of regulation on the financial fortunes of the company because regulation is cautious, it's slow, it takes time. Regulation can sort of be at the tiller and can make adjustments to the direction, but the really big changes are driven by technology. But first, Matt, London Calling by The Clash turns up in almost every film where someone goes to London, doesn't it? But is there an actual film called London Calling? Uh, sort of. It was the production title for The Amazing Spider-Man 2. Really? Uh, in the same way that E.T. was originally called A Boy and His Dog, and Star Trek was apparently corporate headquarters. There must be more song titles than movie titles about phone calls, though. There's Ring Ring by ABBA. Call Me and Hanging on the Telephone by Blondie. Yeah, there's even song titles that are phone numbers. You've got 86750309, of course. Uh, Wilson Pickett 63457789, which was based on the Marvelettes Beechwood 45789. All the way back to Pennsylvania 65000, which used the same old telephone numbering system. All right. And of course, the film Butterfield 8 is a reference to a local telephone exchange on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. Anyone else regretting that I asked that question? But anyway, what's been happening around the grounds? Well, as we predicted last time, the ACCC and the Australian Energy Regulator have just held their annual regulatory conference, the first one in person since 2019. Now, this conference has been around in one form or another for quite a while, hasn't it? It has. So it started in 1998 as the Electricity Transmission Network Pricing Conference down in Melbourne. Thigh slapper. And it's been moving north ever since. There were a couple of years in Sydney and then almost a decade on the Gold Coast, uh, including two years, which everyone kept calling the Sea World years. And it's been in <laughs> Brisbane ever since then. I'm sure what happens in SeaWorld stays in SeaWorld. I hope so anyway. Is this what they call regulatory drift? Uh, I think it is. There's also been a bit of regulatory creep as more and more sectors have become regulated, from electricity networks to gas and rail networks, ports and airports, telecommunications, of course. And this year, there was a lot about digital platforms. So as Richard Feasy discusses in his interview, regulation has historically focused on essential facilities that are physical things like ports and power grids, which don't make sense to duplicate. But now we're talking about social networks and operating systems as things that are also uneconomic to duplicate and suggesting that these should be regulated. That's right. And in Europe, but also now in Australia, there's a concept of the digital platforms being gatekeepers or bottlenecks, which sound like they're physical things as well. But of course, they're really analogies and not necessarily perfect ones. And there's quite an interesting debate about how similar these things really are to their physical, I guess, predecessors and how far these analogies can really take us. Mm. And there would have been a bit about decarbonisation as well. Yeah, they have been talking about environmental impacts and even decarbonisation for quite a while now, ever since the short-lived carbon tax in 2011. But this year it was everywhere. I mean, you, you can't even talk about the blockchain without talking about carbon now. It's all come a long way since 1998. Mm, literally. But maybe you could tell us what's been happening around the grounds. I sure can, because some of the biggest names in the world of golf are suing the PGA Tour for dropping them from its tournaments, and even colluding with the other majors to keep them out of those events as well. These are the players who are involved in Greg Norman's Live Tour. Yeah, that's right. The, um, the Shark isn't playing anymore, but Australia's Matt Jones is one of the plaintiffs, along with Phil Mickelson and some other top players. 
And they're saying that the PGA is threatening lifetime bans for anyone who plays a single live tournament, all to maintain its monopoly and shut out potential competitors. Yeah, and they're also saying that the tour's monopoly power has allowed it to preside over the demise of golf itself, like by failing to innovate and bring the game into the 21st century. Innovations like uh, reducing the number of holes from 72 to 54, which also happens to be live in Roman numerals. LIV, that's right. Um, so if golf is a good walk spoiled, then, which this, it is. Is, then this is only three quarters <laughs> spoiled. Now that's innovative. So far, the court has refused to lift the PGA ban on an interim basis. It has, but the Department of Justice is also investigating the PGA for anti-competitive practices. So I guess that's golf swings and roundabouts. I guess that's puns. And the history of sport is full of these new leagues trying to get off the ground and the established leagues going, well, not so fast. And that's when the competition lawyers get involved. Yeah, here in Australia, we had the Super League case in the 1990s, of course, where the new league took the old rugby league to court for getting the clubs to boycott the Super League. And the federal court found for Super League, which then played one season before both leagues merged into the National Rugby League that we all know and, and some of us love. Gosh, was that only one season? was. And of course, last year in real football, the richest clubs thought they'd form a European Super League, and a Spanish court ruled that it would be an abuse of dominance for UEFA to exclude the teams or take legal action against them. That was later overturned, and it's all now in the European Court of Justice. But of course, there was a robust and very rapid public backlash, and most of the clubs withdrew. Yeah, we'll see what happens there. There's quite a bit of debate going back decades now about whether sports leagues are natural monopolies and whether they should be regulated, especially when they can have such a big impact on fans and even on communities when they decide to exclude or merge or move a team. In the US, uh, Major League Baseball has an exemption from the Sherman Act and has done since the court found in 1922 that it wasn't engaged in commerce. But that's now being questioned after 100 years. Maybe that'll be one for the next regulatory conference, maybe up in Townsville, if it keeps drifting north. Anyway, I can talk about sport and antitrust all day, but do you have anything closer to your neck of the woods, Matt? Well, I do, because the Department of Justice has just gone to court to stop the merger between Penguin Random House and Simon & Schuster, two of the biggest publishers in the world. Penguin Random House, of course, uh, is a result of the merger of Penguin and Random House nearly 10 years ago. And Simon and & Schuster is the result of a merger between two guys called Simon and & Schuster? Basically. And, uh, and they got together in 1924 to publish the world's first book of crossword puzzles. Really? I don't suppose they were competition law cryptic crosswords. I'm guessing they weren't because the book was phenomenally successful. It uh, sold 100,000 copies and it founded a publishing empire that has lasted almost 100 years. But it won't quite make 100 unless the DOJ gets in its way. No, that's right. The DOJ says the merger would harm competition in the publishing industry and would be especially bad for authors. The complaint says that without authors, there would be no stories, no poetry, no biographies, no written discourse on history, arts, culture, society or politics. That's beautiful. It sounds like there might be an aspiring author working there at the DOJ. There might be. And the argument is that if the two publishers were to merge, they wouldn't compete anymore to sign up popular authors with big advances. And their case got a fair boost and made a lot of headlines when the trial began and Stephen King took the stand. You mean... Dr. Stephen King, the former ACCC commissioner, now at the Productivity Commission? Well, I actually meant uh, the writer Stephen King, the king of horror. Oh. That's why I said the stand like that. Oh, why? Oh, never mind. Let's carry on. What? Oh, forget it. Just tell me what he said about the merger. <laughs> well, he said, um, hang on, let's pull up the audio. What he said was... I'll take all of you as I'll feast on your flesh as I feed on your fear. Wow, that's compelling testimony. Now, please... Put me out of my misery. Ah, very good. Now, Moya, you've recently come back from the Euros, where the hosts were, of course, victorious. They were. And I think that if the Australian team is called the Matildas, the English team should now be called the Carolines. 
do we think? Makes sense to me. Well, it was wild to be amongst 87,192 people at Wembley. That's a record crowd for any Euros final, men or women. And, you know, there was absolutely zero crowd trouble. That is amazing. Makes me wonder whether men's sport and women's sport are actually in different markets. Certainly they're very different fan cultures where you don't hear racism or homophobia or violence in the stands at women's sports. And on the field, you see very little diving or fighting or yelling at the refs. This is definitely a topic for a future episode. I hope so. But while you were there, you spoke to Richard Feasy, who's had many years of experience as a regulatory advisor and is now a panel inquiry chair at the CMA. Yes, I did. And Richard had a lot to say about the way communications and technology has developed over the last three decades and the way that regulation has changed too. Let's take a listen. I'm delighted today to be talking to Richard Feasy, truly one of the doyens among policy veterans in the telecoms and digital space. And during his very distinguished career at Vodafone, we at GNT were privileged to work on many of his matters. And I have to say, it's rare to have a client who pushes as rigorously at the boundaries of regulatory policy and thought leadership as Richard did. Welcome, Richard. Hello, Moya. Nice to see you again. Great to be face to face after (laughs) being uh, stuck on an island for a very long time. Richard, I want to take you back to the 1990s, because it's easy to forget what a different world we all lived in then. I mean, if I had asked you back then what you thought of the landscape of telecommunications policy and where the big threats were, what would we have said? Well, I joined the industry in 1991, and that was at a time when the UK had already privatised BT and was trying to inject more competition into the fixed communications network. All the focus was on the fixed industry at that point. Mobile communications was regarded as a sort of neat businessman's tool. It was very new and very expensive. And I remember the phones were very big. Yeah. Initially they were, you had to install them in your cars because you couldn't actually physically carry them. So all the focus was really on how do you get more competition into the market to compete against BT. And the first step on that was really to try and get down the price of long distance phone calls and international calls. You may remember in a company called Mercury came in and did that, but having done that really not very much happened until the UK government at least hit upon the idea of broadband or cable networks. Although we didn't call them broadband networks in those days, might be able to lay new cables to people's houses and provide competition that way. So I cut my teeth, if you like, in trying to build that fixed broadband infrastructure in local markets to compete with BT. And all the issues were about all the things you needed to do to make that happen. So allowing customers to switch easily and keep their telephone number and a whole bunch of questions about interconnection. So it was pretty nuts and boltsy type things about transferring customers really away from the monopoly operator who, for perfectly understandable reasons, was resisting that pretty strongly. And the sense was, as I recall, that these cable TV networks were the only viable second network into the home that could uh, bypass this monopoly copper wire that had been there for a very long time and had to be driven by revenues out of the television industry, essentially. That's right. And, and turned out they weren't viable. So the, at least the first generation and probably the second generation of investors who are primarily U S 
companies. The irony was that the money came from the United States to the UK because rate regulation of the Bell telephone companies in the US restricted the returns they could earn on their businesses in the US. So they sought higher returns, unregulated returns. And of course, in the in US, the we'd already seen the separation of AT&T into long distance and local. Yep. So they'd had a big restructuring about 10 years prior to that. Seems like a lot of the regulatory thinking was aimed at how do we dismantle these vertically integrated monopolies? We can cut them this way. We can cut them that way. We can try and find a competitor out of another industry that will converge. It was an interesting time, wasn't it? For I think that's right. What's interesting in Europe is the idea of splitting these companies up and breaking telephone companies up. I mean, even if we scroll forward 30 years, BT is basically still an integrated business. Deutsche Telekom, France, you know, all the European telcos. We split up the energy networks. We split up the electricity and the gas networks. Nobody ever in Europe, at least, split up these businesses. And the reason principally because they were worth more to privatize if you sold them as a single business. But of course, the consequence of that was if you had 20, 30 years of regulatory issues of dealing with these vertically integrated firms. But inevitably nothing went as planned, did it, when these various regulatory efforts were made to deal with the fixed networks, because in fact, along came mobiles. Yeah. And nobody, including the mobile industry themselves, nobody really anticipated the rate of growth and the market opportunity for cellular. So it had grown slowly through the nineties, largely controlled by the former state fixed line companies. So BT had a big mobile business and France Telecom and Deutsche Telekom and so on. And then a few scrappy competitors of whom Vodafone was one saw an opportunity and really built businesses completely from scratch with private money right from the beginning. And they were regulated very differently to the fixed networks too, weren't they? They weren't regulated at all in the early, I mean, I was brought into Vodafone in 2001 because after you know, 16, 17 years, regulators had suddenly understood that, for example, the amount of money or revenue that was being transferred to the mobile industry when people on the BT network called a Vodafone customer, uh, so so-called call termination, suddenly those sums were massive because the number of customers had grown and the volume of calls had grown. So that became a kind of economic question that just hadn't arisen before or which had been in the kind of margins of people's visibility before that. And that was somewhat the focus of the regulation, wasn't it? To ensure that there could be any to any calling and that there was number portability. But at the network layer, there was really not much regulation at all. No, no. I mean, there were, there were attempts a bit later on to encourage so-called MVNOs into the market. And I think actually... You and I may have first had discussions with, you know, about that sort of topic. So over time, people did try and apply a bit the model that they had used to try and open up the fixed networks to opening up the mobile networks as well. But by and large, the market developed in the mobile side and expanded massively without really much intervention at all. And actually, I would argue as well that if you look at the most significant sort of entry and competition on the fixed side in the last 30 years, at least in Europe and to some extent in the US, maybe in Australia, it's really been the cable industry, which is also largely unregulated and regulators, at least in terms of the sort of telecom side of the cable industry. So quite often it's ironic that the really big competitive entry and consequences come from firms that have often been ignored by regulators, at least until they get big. We certainly saw a lot of innovation out of those less regulated networks and businesses, didn't we? I mean, mobiles, there was a huge amount of innovation. The cable networks were busily putting set-top boxes, which everybody thought were going to be the gateway to the future and were 
the regulators were actually a bit focused on regulating them rather than mobile devices. Certainly in Australia, that was the case. Yes. When I was there in 2001, Vodafone had just launched Vodafone Live, which was really a copy of what Docomo was doing in Japan of, uh, of the early stages of the mobile internet. So a Sony handset and a walled garden kind of portal and all that stuff. Uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, we were buying content and doing content deals and so on. And we thought we would be the center of the mobile internet and the firm that would sort of orchestrate all the other suppliers in, in a way that actually Docomo had been able to do in Japan because of its scale and size. But actually, I think we were slightly deluded, frankly. And if you look at a lot of the mobile innovation, it's at the industry level because we have this sort of common standards, the operators tend to move together in lockstep from one generation of technology to another. It hasn't been the result of individual firms taking big risks and going off in a completely different direction from the other players in the industry. Those industries were traditionally moving in lockstep. I mean, they had interoperability, they had standards. Yeah. The culture may have changed since I left about 10 years ago, but the engineers in the business and the need to have a reliable, predictable quality of service. Those were the objectives of these companies. They were engineering businesses that prize themselves on the, on the sort of reliability of their service. So that's not a business where you're going to, to quote Mark Zuckerberg, move fast and break things. You will take a long time to test before you deploy new technology at scale because you can't afford to make mistakes. One of the things I learned from the early 2000s and the Vodafone Live experience and so on was that the kind of company culture, as well as the skills that you need to run reliable, predictable networks that don't fall over and don't break down are not necessarily the skills and the culture that you need to have a frantically innovating business that's basically driven by software rather than by hardware. Well, you could have saved people a lot of money if you'd uh, just said that back in the 90s. <laughs> well, yes, over the years, if you added up the amount of money that telecoms industry has spent either in acquiring internet businesses in the, in the hope that they will somehow be able to infuse themselves with the whatever it is that the internet companies have, or from scratch in Vodafone's case and in Telefonica and some other companies' case, try to build internet businesses of their own then, you know, it's, it's many billions of dollars, I suspect, these days. And at the same time, we started to see arguments emerge in the US about net neutrality, where the fixed networks were facing some pretty strict rules about how they would deal non-discriminatorily with those downstream. Yes, it was a very strange period. I followed it quite closely, partly because Vodafone had a 45% interest in Verizon, which was one of the largest mobile companies in the US. Uh, and fixed line company as well, but also because I thought this was likely to come to Europe and, and actually it was an important part of Barack Obama's election manifesto at one point. So telecoms issues suddenly got this huge sort of visibility and popularity. And I always found it a very strange debate, partly because there was very little evidence that actually companies were engaged in the kind of practices that were alleged like blocking services. I mean, the one or two examples, but by and large. You know, certainly inside companies, the idea that you would deny your customers access to services and that this was a good commercial strategy in a competitive market didn't really make much sense to me. So I, I thought that people were discussing threats that didn't really materialize and didn't really exist. But also it wasn't obvious to me why these networks, as they got smarter and more intelligent,
region shouldn't have incentives to sell particular services to particular companies. And it wasn't clear to me why in telecoms, for some reason, all the money should be made by charging the end customers on one side of the platform to use the current terminology, rather than potentially being able to impose charges on the other side of the platform. Or someone develops a new video streaming service and goes along to Vodafone and says, it'd be really good if you could design your network so that actually this works better and we might be prepared to pay you something if you did that. You know, I've always found it interesting because the telecoms industry in the end, I think, concluded it wasn't a fight worth having and by and large hasn't really resisted very hard. But there is one of those alternative history questions about if we hadn't had those restrictions, to what extent would there have been more innovation in the networks? And would the financial position and, and sort of overall shape of these businesses been? Because it really stopped telecoms companies becoming platform businesses, in my view, because you could only have a commercial relationship with one side of the market, if you like. It really prohibited any kind of commercial arrangements emerging between the telecoms companies and the internet companies. In the meantime, the mobile industry was developing a pace, particularly when the iPhone arrived. Yes. I mean, again, no one really saw that coming. There were rumors that Apple was working on something, but it wasn't clear. And it was a transformative moment in my memory because we'd been struggling to make 3G get traction. The devices weren't great. The user experience wasn't brilliant. The coverage was terrible. So 3G was really an awful generation for the industry. But the iPhone really changed people's attitude to the mobile internet and sort of gave a vision at least of what it might look like. And it was really realized then with 4G and, and LTE. And, you know, it, it was just a kind of stroke of genius, really the touchscreen phone and the app store and building a platform around the operating system. You know, sometimes people come along with transformative ideas and Mr. Jobs certainly did. He certainly did. And that device, the mobile device, became all the things that we thought set-top boxes were going to be and more. Yes. I mean, I mean, there's an interesting question about whether the rate of innovation on smartphones and devices is now slowing, but for a period of time, it replaced clocks, it replaced cameras, all sorts of other consumer goods, you know, wallets it's replacing. Suddenly all of these were consolidated in a device that you could have in the palm of your hand and it's been completely transformational for societies and economies around the world. And my view has always been the greatest achievement of companies like Vodafone was not building these networks, although that is no trivial matter. It was getting millions and millions of these devices into the hands of people. So people forget that these mobile businesses were fantastic and massive retailers. Vodafone, I remember we did a study and we had more retail floor space than Ikea, which was one of the biggest retailers in Europe at that time. I mean, in a lot of shops all over the place, but that retailing piece, which is often underestimated and I think undervalued in the industry, the telcos don't like to think of themselves as retailers. They think of themselves as technology companies, but that logistics chain and the distribution of these billions of devices is a transformational achievement. Yeah, the sales and marketing function too. Yeah, and, and uh, all of it. I mean, it, it's a hugely complex and difficult thing to get right, not something the operators have always focused on as much as they might do. And unlike IKEA, you didn't have to put it together yourself. It just worked out of the box. Well, that's true. But there, there were a few things to do to make it work. But the iPhone and then sort of everything that came after that really, I think, gave people a vision of what 
the mobile internet could really do. And the industry embraced it enthusiastically and sold millions and millions of devices. I mean, the issue is where the value and the profit from that activity goes. And obviously quite a bit of it flowed back to uh, Cupertino and Apple and some of the other manufacturers. But that's what's been the transformational change in the last 20 years, as you say. And it truly accelerated the development of usage, consumer consumption, and all the time pretty much unregulated. I mean, maybe there's a relationship between being unregulated and developing so rapidly when you look at the handsets and everything that flowed through them. The iPhone and the other devices sort of dropped into a market that by then was pretty competitive, pretty dynamic, uh, had some very commercially savvy companies operating in it, like I would argue Vodafone, which, you know, it wasn't a kind of former state company that was populated by ex-civil servants and so on. It was an extremely commercially savvy company. And so the market conditions were right to mean that the technology could just get diffused at a huge scale. Yeah, the companies were extremely successful. Vodafone was at that time when I joined it, the largest company on the UK stock exchange. So a combination of features came together and you kind of got ignition. And we didn't quite have the right technology. 3G wasn't really the right platform to drop it onto, but 4G is really the lessons learned from 3G and was really the first proper mobile internet platform to really realize some of the potential of that. Do you think regulators foresaw the importance of the operating systems, the browsers, the app stores, etc., that were being diffused along with those devices? The telecoms regulators were focused on the entities that they understood and with whom they had a relationship, which were the operators and the people who ran the networks. Everything else, the software, the operating systems, the hardware manufacturers and so on, was really, I think, outside of their field of vision. And it was pretty dynamic and competitive, so there wasn't necessarily any reason. But I think, as so often, the scale and significance of a company like Apple has taken people a long time to understand and appreciate the sort of consequences of that. The other thing I would say in my experience was the power of these companies, or, or particularly Apple, you know, in, in those days, I mean, this is now many years ago, meant that the telecoms industry was to some extent dependent upon them. And so even if there were problems, you know, commercial problems between the firms or competition problems that you might want to look at, people were reluctant to complain and to sort of highlight these things to regulators because the commercial consequences of getting into conflict with these companies were quite difficult. And I think that's a real issue with these kinds of platforms because you've got lots of people who potentially have the best information about what's going on, who are commercially very dependent on them and are very reluctant for very good reasons to lift the curtain on some of these things. They're very sticky too, aren't they? I mean, people tend not to churn much between operating systems, for example, on mobiles. Because they have to switch out. No, no. Uh, well, first of all, there's only two of them. So the number of choices you have is quite limited. They're obviously very good at building complex relationships with customers and having a lot of control over the interface between the customer, if you like, and the rest of the technology. So I remember many years ago when I joined Vodafone, in those days, the concern was about Nokia and the market position of Nokia. Oh, wow, I mean, that's going that, back, that, that goes back a while, but not so long ago. And, you know, the mantra then within Vodafone was people come into a Vodafone retail store and the first thing they say is, I want to buy a Nokia. And the second question then is, okay, which network will I attach that to? Okay. So 
They're pretty indifferent about which network they connected to. They have a very strong attachment to the brand of the device itself because it's a physical thing you can see and hold. And that's exactly the same with an iPhone. It's the same, you know, despite Vodafone aspiration, the conversation being, I want to be connected to Vodafone. Now, which device do I choose to do that? That transformation has never happened. And today people say, I know I want an Apple or I want an Android. I'm much less concerned about which network I attach it to. I think the way that those platforms wrap themselves around you is the same globally, right? I mean, yeah. if you switch, you're going to maybe lose your music uh, collection that you've you might have paid for yeah. uh, all sorts of things. There are all sorts of consequences to shifting platforms, which means that people don't do it terribly much. Nope, that's true. What about the world of Web3? I think it's fair to say that most of us don't have a particularly good understanding of where that's taking us. Maybe that's just the stage of development. It's all sort of foggy and uh, to be revealed, but surely that's going to bring you around another shake-up and perhaps another set of opportunities that companies might accelerate into without the effective oversight of a regulator. It's fascinating because just at the point at which we're having a very serious debate, certainly in Europe, and I know the ACCC has been having a similar debate over the last few years and to some extent in the United States, although with less tangible results so far, just at the point at which we're debating really the regulation of a centralized internet effectively, which is what the very large platforms are. You know, they have very large computing capability, which consolidates data and then analyzes it and uses it in various ways. So although the internet was originally conceived as a highly decentralized kind of architecture, we ended up with a kind of highly centralized system and web three to my non-technical understanding, you know, part of the vision is essentially to decentralize again. So potentially it's extremely disruptive to the current very large firms in some respects, at least I'm sure there are other opportunities for them in it. So just at the point at which we're, if you like, going to solve the problem of large firms in the internet by regulation, there's potentially a very disruptive wave of technology coming along. You know, my experience, if I reflect back over sort of 30 years, is that the disruptive effect of technology in the telecoms industry and more generally the tech industry has always been more dramatic and more significant than regulation. So. I used to have a mantra in Vodafone, I'm much more concerned about the disruptive effect of competition enabled by new technology than I am actually about the impact of regulation on the financial fortunes of the company because regulation is cautious, it's slow, it takes time. Regulation can sort of be at the tiller and can make adjustments to the direction. But the really big changes are driven by technology, which is why understanding the technology and anticipating technology, I think is one of the most important things, both for companies, but also for regulators. And if you put the high beam on and think about what world we might be living in, in say three to five years, what do you think it will look like? I'm quite interested in 5G. The interesting thing is really, does that further diminish the role of a traditional telephone company? because more and more of the capability of running a network and the technology to do that just becomes software sitting in the cloud. So I think what we'll see is a continuation of what we've really been talking about today, which is a gradual marginalization of the traditional telecoms company and a sort of continued story about how these businesses adapt and reinvent themselves in that light. And I'm not sure that we yet know what that reinvention looks like. There have been a whole series of attempts by companies in the US and elsewhere. Maybe you buy a content business, maybe you 
you know, you integrate upwards and backwards, maybe you buy internet businesses, but I think that kind of quest for the reinvented telecoms network operator is still being undertaken and it's no easy matter, that's for sure. So I think we'll see the continued growth of the large internet players, probably into parts of the value chain that we used to regard as being the preserve of the network companies. But we'll also see some innovation, hopefully, on the side of the network companies as well. And at the layers well above the network, we've seen working from home, companies like Zoom that probably no one had heard of a few years ago. We've seen blockchain and all of the things that can be built off that. I suppose there's one thing we can know, and that is that uh, consumers will continue to be confronted by an array of new services that enable them to do things differently. My impression, maybe it's a sign of my old age, is the rate of technological innovation is accelerating. I certainly don't see any, any evidence that it's slowing down. And the platforms that we've got that you can innovate on are becoming ever more powerful. The things that you need to do that, which is really about the cost of connectivity and the capability and the cost of computing. I mean, when I give lectures to students, I say the global internet is built on, you know, universal broadband connectivity and massive cheap computing power. Those are the two magic ingredients on which everything else is built. And the cost and capability of connectivity will continue to improve rapidly. And the cost of computing power and capability of computing power will continue to advance as well. So those two things in themselves are a incredibly powerful combination, which when you mix together, produce all these other things and that will just continue and some things will work and some things won't and companies will come and go and that's as it should be. On a bad day, sometimes I imagine us all retreating into our various virtual worlds and living obsessively in them until the power runs out and the planet catches fire. But uh, fortunately we have regulators around the world who I'm sure will step in and make sure that doesn't well, I, yes, I <laughs> Yes, I, I, I hope not. One of the things I think we didn't fully appreciate, and, and again, another aspect where regulation takes a while to catch up is we didn't understand fully, I think, uh, no one ever does, the implications of some of this technology for people's lives and for young people and for sort of the social fabric uh, of the world. And commercial organizations aren't always great at sort of appreciating or understanding that. And so there are lots of consequences if you've been in this industry for a long time that you wonder... You know, could we have done things differently? And it's not unambiguously good, all the things that have happened as a result of the widespread diffusions of smartphones and so on. But I think on balance, particularly in parts of the world which were less developed, where I think the impact of these communications technologies has been even more profound than it was in Europe or in Australia or in the US. It's still been transformational, sometimes in, in ways we might regret, but by and large in a, in a very positive way. Well, I think when the printing press was invented, there were fears expressed that people, you know, once they learned to read and they had books, they would retreat into their little corner of a library and just sit there accessing the world and all of its knowledge through a page and they'd stop talking to each other and, you know, society as we know it would eat. Just describe what teenagers do these days. <laughs> <laughs> Not much has changed in all those hundreds of years. No, no, I, I, you know, I, I, I struggle to get my children off their smartphones sometimes. I, well, I struggle to get myself a lot of the time. But Richard Feasy, it's been terrific to talk to you today and hear your observations and insights looking back on 20 plus years of involvement in this industry, but also the depth of the uh, analysis and the thinking that you brought to the industry. So thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. What a great interview. 
I actually did a succumbent at Vodafone um, when 3G was being rolled out. You could feel that it was close to living up to all the hype, but it just wasn't there yet. Yeah, well, now if you're driving and you stray into a 3G area, it's like the dark side of the moon. I know, and you can't get out because your maps all stop working. And now the new smartphone platforms have overturned everything. The mobile carriers have become almost commoditized, and it's quite a different future from the one they were imagining. And now it's the digital platforms getting the regulatory attention. It is. And look, I'm glad Richard mentioned Web3, because mm-hmm. I'm determined to understand what it means before they release Web4. Yeah, I bet they'll go Roman this time. It'll be web if. <laughs> hey, I thought I had the crystal ball this week. You won't see anything that good in there. I'm not sure about that. Because you remember we spoke about the special access undertaking that applies to the National Broadband Network Mm -hmm. and how the ACCC wasn't convinced about the NBN's pricing for the next few years. That was the tic-tac on the whack, right? That's the one. The NBN has now withdrawn that variation and it'll submit a new one based on some quite different assumptions. Like the NBN won't be privatised anytime soon, it'll stay in public ownership for now, and it won't have the same expectations of cost recovery. So it'll have more of an emphasis on building out full fibre access. And it's no coincidence this has come pretty soon after the change of government. Not at all. There's a letter about the undertaking from the new communications minister to the new ACCC chair, who worked together at GNT all those years ago, of course. And I mean, it looks quite straightforward on its face, but it feels kind of historic. You can imagine there'd be something pretty special for both of them about this one little piece of regulatory correspondence. And when the minister tells the chair, I look forward to working with you, you get the feeling she really does. You do, and we're looking forward to that too. Yep, in our crystal ball. Thanks, Matt. Remember, you can find relevant links in our show notes. And we've got some great guests still to come, including partners Susan Jones and John Lee on the intersection between competition law and intellectual property, and USC professor Danny Sokol on regulation, investment and innovation. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, leave us a review and tell your friends. Until next time, this was The Competitive Edge with Gilbert and Tobin.